Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 3. Last week, in the second installment of the Summary of Deuteronomy, I covered the first half of Moses' second address to the Israelite people. In that speech, his overall theme was to obey God and be rewarded, disobey, and God will have his vengeance. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This episode picks up in the middle of that second address. And with that, let's get started. Chapter 12 of Deuteronomy kicks off with Moses once again instructing the Israelites to utterly destroy all vestiges of the Canaanites' religion, all of their idols, altars, sacred poles, to cut them down and burn them, leaving no trace of these religions. We've heard this before, and the rationale is simple. Remove any temptation to follow any of these outside deities. He then tells the people that God will choose a place for them to worship Him. At this yet-to-be-determined location, they should make sacrifices and tender offerings. Then he warns them that they are not to choose the place to worship God. The general understanding of this passage is that the priestly Levites would choose a place for the temple, where the worship would occur. Then a warning not to consume the blood from a slaughtered animal, but instead, when butchering the carcass, the blood is to be poured on the ground. Just after this blood warning, the rules concerning the offerings of grain, wine, oil, and firstborn livestock are all reiterated. These are to be brought to the temple, even if the temple is quite a distance from the people. And the reason is explicitly stated. These are for the Levites. Why? They are not receiving an allotment of land and must rely on the mandated offerings and sacrifices. Chapter 12 wraps up with renewed warning about worshiping the Canaanite gods, maintaining that the Canaanites even offered burnt sacrifices of their sons and daughters to these idols. Finally, Moses tells the people, You must diligently observe everything that I command you. Do not add to it or take anything from it. And that's chapter 12. Chapter 13 continues the declaration that the Israelites should stay away from the regional deities and focus only on God. In this case, the people are warned about false prophets. Moses tells them, If prophets or those who divine by dreams appear among you and promise you omens or portents, and the omens or the portents declared by them take place, and they say, Let us follow other gods, whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You must not heed the words of those prophets, or those who divine by dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you, to know whether you indeed love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul. In this case, the Israelites are to execute these false prophets. Moses tells them to purge this evil from their ranks. In the next paragraph, they are told what to do if someone attempts to lead them to worship a false god, even if that someone is their brother, son, daughter, or wife. You are to personally execute that person. Moses isn't messing around with these false gods. Those that attempt such things are to be shown no mercy and also are to be stoned to death. And I know I was redundant, saying to put them to death, then also saying they are to be stoned. 
But in this case, well, really all throughout Deuteronomy, Moses makes his point by repeating himself over and over again. He tells the people why they are to treat the pushers of foreign religions so harshly, in addition to it making God angry, but also to set an example for the next person who would consider doing such a thing. He then takes it a step further. What if a whole Israelite town turns against God? If after a thorough investigation, the rumors turn out to be true, then everyone in the town is to be executed. The livestock is to be slaughtered too, and everything in the town is to be burned. Even what normally would have been the spoils gained by the victors, the burning of the town, along with all of its contents, is characterized as a burnt offering to God. After the houses are destroyed, the ruins of the town are to be abandoned as a warning to anyone considering such a course in the future. And that's 13, a whole chapter with a singular message. Do not tolerate anyone who leads you astray. Execute them. Chapter 14 begins with a couple of sentences on how they are to keep their hair. In the New Revised Standard, they are told not to lacerate yourselves or shave your forelocks for the dead. The NIV is worded in a similar manner, but the King James is different. Ye shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. I was curious and looked up forelock just to make sure it wasn't synonymous with eyebrows. It's not, and best understood in the English that I speak as bangs. Likely, yet another thing lost in either the translation of the ancient Hebrew to English or in the culture. After this, we get to the meat of chapter 14. What animals are considered clean and unclean for consumption? While this was covered much earlier in Leviticus chapter 11, the list in Deuteronomy is somewhat more extensive, likely arising from the many questions that Moses faced in the almost 40 years between the writing of the two passages. The rules are the same. For land-dwelling animals to be considered clean, they have to have a split hoof and chew their cud. So, oxen, sheep, goats, deer, gazelles, roebucks, wild goats, ibex, antelope, and mountain sheep. Most of these are likely familiar to you. The only one I was questioning was the roebuck, but that's just a specific species of deer, native to Europe and the Middle East. Knowing that, it's more obvious why they were in the later list in Deuteronomy. When Leviticus was written, the Israelites were at Sinai, and outside of the native range of the roebuck, but as they wandered into Moab, they began to encounter this deer. Of course, Abraham and his lot, and progeny, would have come across this animal. But Abraham didn't have to abide by the kosher eating requirements. He was likely unconcerned about hooves and cud. Moses also tells the people of a few animals they cannot eat, even telling them why. Yet of those that chew the cud or have a hoof cleft, you shall not eat these. The camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not divide the hoof, they are unclean for you. And the pig, because it divides the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. 
you shall not eat their meat, and you shall not touch their carcasses. This is exceedingly similar to the Leviticus passage. Moses moves on to seafood. Yes to fish that have fins and scales. No to anything else. So, no shellfish nor eel. Next are the rules concerning the consumption of birds. They could eat every bird except for those listed. No eating eagles, vultures, ospreys, buzzards, kites, ravens, ostriches, nighthawks, seagulls, hawks, little owls, great owls, desert owls, water hens, carrion vultures, cormorants, storks, herons, hoopoos, and bats. And we know bats are not birds, but they couldn't eat them, so it really didn't matter. And a couple of notes on this list. Unlike the earlier listing of clean and unclean livestock and wild mammals, this list of birds is essentially the same as the earlier one in Leviticus, though in a slightly different order. The footnotes of the New Revised Standard tell us that the desert owl can alternatively be translated as a pelican, which is a much different bird. But the next footnote essentially tells us the list is not very reliable, as the true translation from ancient Hebrew has been lost. This makes sense, as several of the birds listed in the NIV are much different. Horned owls, falcons, two different kinds of kites, a white owl. The King James is even more different. There's a bird rendered as an ossifrage, which looks like it could be an old English spelling of ostrich, but it's not. It's actually thought to be a bearded vulture. Also, King James says no swans and something called a lapwing. This is a wading bird with different varieties found all over the world. Next in Deuteronomy are the rules concerning the consumption of insects. No flying insects can be eaten. Not a word was said about insects that don't fly. What does this mean? Leviticus was more verbose about insects, which has led some, in an ironic twist, to consider a few species of locusts to be kosher, at least by some modern rabbis. Others dispute the claim that these insects are kosher. Next, the Israelites are forbidden from eating anything that died of natural causes, though they're told these animals can be consumed by resident aliens or can be sold to foreigners. They can also not cook a kid, meaning a baby goat, in its mother's milk. This requirement has led to the kosher prohibition of mixing meat and dairy. Burgers are fine, and cheese is acceptable, but not cheeseburgers. Then Moses switches gears and focuses on tithing. The people are told to tithe, so give the first 10% of the grain harvest, wine production, olive oil, along with the firstborn of their livestock. These are to be brought to the temple. But if the temple is too far away, then the crops and livestock can be sold, and the money earned given to the temple are used to buy something to sacrifice. This led to the practice that Jesus confronted in John 2, where he drove the money changers from the temple. Once again, Moses tells the people not to forget the Levites. Finally, Every third year, they were told to bring out the full tithe of their produce for that year and store it within their respective towns. 
Moses then tells them that the Levites, because they have no allotment or inheritance, along with the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows in the towns, were allowed to come and eat their fill so that God would bless them in all of their work. And that wraps up chapter 14. In chapter 15, Moses reminds the people of the rules concerning the sabbatical year, meaning every seventh year. In Deuteronomy, he expands on the concept first presented in Exodus, then Leviticus, where the prior mentions concerned mostly the treatment of farmland, essentially letting it lay fallow every seven years, but not here. Now Moses focuses on debt, telling the people that every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. And this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that it is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. So, debts between Israelites are forgiven, but those who are indebted, but not Israelite, still owe the money. Moses also has the foresight to address national debt, telling the people they can lend to foreign countries, but borrow from none. He then circles back to the lending between the people, anticipating how the people might change their lending habits as the seventh year approached. He tells them that if someone is in need, lend them the money, even as the sabbatical approaches. If they do not, the needy may cry out to God, and the non-lender may be judged by God as being guilty. But if they do lend, then God will bless them in all that they do. Moses continues the refined regulations about the sabbatical and addresses what happens to Hebrew slaves in the seventh year. Whether the slave is male or female, in the seventh year, they are to be set free. This, too, is a refinement of what was found in Leviticus. When they are set free, their former owner is to set them up for success by providing them with livestock, grain, and wine. The slave, though, was given the option of staying, likely if they thought their life was better in servitude than it would be as a freeman. In that case, the owner is told to take an awl, meaning a spike or nail, and thrust it through his earlobe into the door, showing the world that he will be a slave forever. Do note that the New Revised Standard, in some cases footnotes that slave can alternatively be translated as bondman or bondwoman. Both the NIV and King James uses the word servant. This part of the text wraps up with Moses telling the people, Do not consider it a hardship when you send them out from you free persons, because for six years they have given you services worth the wages of hired laborers, and the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Which raises an interesting question. Were all slaves released in the same seventh year, like pick a year, 1000 BC? Or did they all remain as a servant until the seventh anniversary of their induction? I searched a moderate amount finding no satisfactory answer. My interpretation, based solely on the wording, is that they served until the seventh anniversary. Moses wraps up chapter 15 with a few words about what to do with the firstborn livestock. They are to be consecrated to the Lord 
and if an ox, not used as a beast of burden, if a sheep, not sheared. Instead, they are to be slaughtered and eaten, unless they show a serious defect, like being lame or blind. Also, once again, the people are told not to eat any blood, just pour it on the ground. And that's the chapter. In 16, Moses reminds the people of the rules concerning Passover. This was covered in Exodus 12 with the first Passover, and again in Leviticus 23, though the Leviticus mention is extremely brief. In Deuteronomy, Moses gets into the weeds with what is expected of the Israelites at Passover, things such as sacrifices from the flocks and herds, with the meat consumed by sunrise the next morning. Also, no consumption of leavening for the next week. Then on the seventh day, there should be a solemn assembly for the Lord your God, when they will do no work. Moses goes into similar detail concerning the annual festival of weeks, to occur seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain, so seven weeks after the harvest begins. Interestingly, the King James says it was to occur seven weeks after the harvest of the corn, which would have to mean einkorn and not what we think of as corn. Einkorn is a species of wheat grain. Our version of corn is native to North and South America and would have been unknown to the wandering Israelites. Next is the review of the Festival of Booths, once again in greater detail than before. Moses wraps up this section with a clear instruction. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, at the festival of weeks, and at the festival of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All shall give as they are able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he is giving you. And with that review, Moses moves on to his next important topic, the judicial organization of the tribes. Recall that in Exodus, Moses' father-in-law Jethro gives him sage advice by telling him he was working himself to death and needed to delegate some authority. Think of this part of the text, the part in Deuteronomy, as Moses figuring out how to keep that going on after his death. Yet another part of his legacy he doesn't go into too much detail, though, telling the people to appoint judges and officials and that those people shouldn't take bribes, as bribes distort justice. The chapter wraps up with a short warning, yet again, about worshipping outside deities. He tells the people not to plant any tree as a sacred pole beside the altar that you make for the Lord your God. They should also avoid setting up a stone pillar, things that God hates. Chapter 17 begins with additional rules on sacrifices. Don't sacrifice animals with serious defects. We heard this a chapter or two ago. But remember, the vast majority of the Israelites were illiterate, so repetition was necessary for retention. Speaking of repetition, Moses once again tells the people what to do if someone is found worshiping a false god. Take them outside of the gates of town and stone them. But, and this part is new, the finding of guilt required at least two witnesses. The actual text says it requires two or three witnesses, 
the ambiguity isn't explained, but the overall message was that one witness was not enough, and the two witnesses had to be the ones to cast the first stones. A bit of foreshadowing. After this, he circles back to the judicial system. He authorizes both the Levite priest and the appointed judges to resolve the disputes that the people cannot resolve among themselves. Moses gives the priest and judges essentially absolute authority to resolve these disputes by telling the people, carry out exactly the decision that they announce to you from the place that the Lord will choose, diligently observing everything they instruct you. You must carry out fully the law that they interpret for you, or the ruling that they announce to you. Do not turn aside from the decision that they announce to you, either to the right or to the left. As for anyone who presumes to disobey the priest appointed to minister there to the Lord your God, or the judge, that person shall die. As for any person who presumes to disobey the priest appointed to minister there to the Lord your God, or the judge, that person shall die. He also tells them that such a death will be an example to not engage in such tomfoolery again. Then, a bit of a premonition. Recall that while Moses was the leader, he was not the king. His power would not pass to his son upon his death, but instead to his successor, Joshua, handpicked by God. But, Moses tells the people, if they so choose, they can choose a king for themselves, as long as that king is an Israelite. Then something that speaks to what's considered valuable at the time. Moses tells the people, even so, he, meaning the king, must not acquire many horses for himself, or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses, since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. Moses continues, When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall remain with him, and he shall read it in all of the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. It's like he was speaking directly to Solomon, who ruled as king several hundred years later. Recall that in 1 Kings 11, Solomon is said to have had some 700 wives and 300 concubines, many from foreign lands, including the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh. 1 Kings 10 tells us that he collected 666 talents of gold in a single year. At the current price of gold, this is over a billion dollars worth. I couldn't find an exact count of how many horses he had, but 1 Kings 4 does say that he had 40,000 horse stalls and 12,000 horse men. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam would succeed him, and very quickly afterwards, the United Kingdom of Israel fell apart. 
which provides me a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the summary of the book of Deuteronomy, picking up in chapter 18. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast's three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.